Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is my first Third Coast, and it's so thrilling and so just so perfect to be here. So I, I'm from Australia, and I work at the ABC, which is our national public broadcaster. There, I'm a senior producer and editor, and I work across a number of programs and projects and um, podcasts and some radio shows. Um, and in my spare time, such as it is, I, um, I have my own practice as a radio writer of my, my own works. Um, working across the BBC, the CBC, um, some podcasts like The Heart, um, and really I, I'm a very personal radio writer. I'm, I guess you'd call me a memoirist, um, dealing with issues about uh, grief and loss and sadness and joy and um, parenting and pretty much the whole gestalt, really. Um, in, the la in the last year, there's been three things that have happened that has made me think about writing for audio. Um, my writing in particular and writing in general. Uh, firstly, I got into a project with a sound artist, a really fantastic, beautiful sound artist who makes gorgeous work, who I admire tremendously. Um, and we were interested in doing some work around the theme and idea of Australian Gothic, sort of horror, weird, crazy uh, stuff that would be sound heavy and um, I would... So she did sound, obviously, and I do the writing. Um, and we got on famously, but very early on she said to me, you know... I just, in the script, I just don't want too much yada yada. <laughs> and I thought, shit, um, I'm a writer. Like, I do the yada yada. Like, without the yada yada, I really don't have a lot. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's got the microphone and the recorder and she makes beautiful soundscapes of wind through trees and rustling leaves and um, oceans and I got nothing. Um, so it really did make me question what is it I do and, and leading to the existential question, you know, am I any use at all? Um, <laughs> So there was that, and then um, an incident at work. I was at a table read going through um, an episode of a podcast series that the ABC is making, and I'm there just as fresh ears. I'm not part of the production team. So I come in, we listen, we, we read the script and we've, we're playing it at the same time, and I listen and I ask you know, the dumb questions like, what does this mean, what's going on here, um, that they may have missed because they're heavy, you know, they're in the weeds of the, of the project. And I really love the process of, you know, and the role of being fresh ears because sometimes it's really refreshing to be the stupidest person in the room. Um, so we're, we're playing it and we're reading the script and it's all going swimmingly and... Um, then we get to, like, page eight, which is sort of halfway through the script, and a character is introduced. She's the friend of the woman who was murdered 40 years ago. So this is a cult case, and she's... Um, it, the woman was 18 at the time, so she's, you know, about 58. And by way of introduction, the script reads, she has a blonde bob and a wide smile. And there's this audible groan in the room and a sort of deathly sigh and then a pen flies across the room. <laughs> and I have this sort of out of 
body moment because it takes me a little while to realise that that's actually me sighing and groaning and throwing a pen. <laughs> and this is not like me. Like, I'm really nice. Um, and I, I'm a senior producer at the ABC. I'm a leader. I love to mentor people. I love to <laughs> bring them along with me. Um, and when I'm fresh ears in a new project team, I at least like to sort of appear to be polite. Um, so someone hands me my pen and I, you know, mouth, sorry, sorry, go ahead. And we just play the rest of the episode and then we go through the script line by line to, you know, answer questions, figure out what's working for people, what's not. And then we get to page eight and this line, and everyone looks at me. And here's the thing. In the last few months before that um, incident, um, I get a lot of scripts across my desk, and I've been reading the words, she has a blonde bob and a wide smile, in just far too many scripts. And I, I hear it on air, and sometimes it's changed a bit, and she's a brunette, and she's got a you know, curious smile, but it's basically the same kind of description and it, it irritates me on a number of levels, partly because I never hear middle-aged men's hairstyles described like that. I just... But, but what really worries me, apart from this sort of apparent rash of women in Australia with wide smiles. <laughs> like, we don't smile very much. We're, you know. Um, my problem really is that I don't care. I don't care what these women ha women's hairstyles are like. Um, and I, I don't really know why we describe people in that fashion. Um, it doesn't give me any insight into who she is. And it sort of, uh, it not only doesn't give me insight, it kind of blunts any insight I may have for her. Um, yeah, so it, the producer actually <laughs> showed me a photo of this woman um, that she'd interviewed it. And she did have a blonde bob and a wide smile, and that's not my, you know, like, I still don't care. It's not whether it's accurate or not. It's just sort of uh, when I'm describing people I like or even people I don't like, it's I rarely go with their hairstyles first and their, their um, teeth. Uh, then a third, a third thing happened. There's a big media school in Sydney um, where I live, the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Note where radio is in the title. Um, and there was talk this year about adding a podcast stream to the curriculum, which seemed fantastic. And I heard, I'm not involved in this school at all, like I don't teach there, it's not, you know, it's none of my business, they can do what they like. But I heard that the podcasting stream would be put in the film department and it enraged me because I am a person who's worked in radio and podcasting all my career and at the ABC we, we have radio and TV. So I have had a career where these TV people have always thought they're cooler than us and always got the lion's share of the budget and always thought they were more serious and, you know, kind of more important. Um, and we have tried to wrestle back some of the mantle that we used to have before TV arrived. Um, and the other thing is, like, podcasting has made radio people like, really cool, and, <laughs> like, I'm 46, I don't have much opportunity to be cool, um, and I did not want to see that taken away from me. Um, 
I, you, you, can, you get this picture of a very delicate ego up here. Um, you know, so it, it annoyed me, but here's the kicker. Because the audio I love and the audio I want to make is intensely visual and intensely filmic. When I listen to something that really gets me, I see people's faces, I see landscapes, I see bodies, I see cities, I see how the ocean um, comes in and goes out, I see all sorts of things. So I, I kind of get what they mean about audio being visual and filmic. I still don't think they're right. So I started to think, what is it about audio that gives us this, you know, very crisp, clear visuals in our mind? And I know it's not by telling audiences about a hairstyle. And when I think about my scripts, and my scripts are heavily written, in all the drafting that I do and all the words that I write, I know many of those words will disappear and I'll find sharper ways of writing, more economical ways of writing, or someone will do it for me, like a, you know, um, a, a trusted advisor will edit it. So I know it's not the yada yada either. So I started to think, what is it? And I thought I'd go back and see films see what it is that is in them that we do as well. So I went immediately to the best film ever made, The Godfather. Um, and I'm just going to play you the last two minutes of the film. It's a three-hour film, so we don't have time. <laughs> but um, the last, so the last two minutes is... Michael Corleone is confronted by his wife, Kay, about the execution of his brother-in-law. She asks him if he did it. Um, and the whole, the whole film has been about Michael's, Michael Corleone's reluctance to join the family business, being the mafia, against this sort of pull into the violence and crime of his family. Don't ask me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Don't ask me about my business. No! <laughs> this one time, this one time I let you ask me about my affairs. Totally true, he did it. Um, so that's, the, I mean, The Godfather is a hyper filmic film. It's so visual and so beautifully made the costuming, the lighting, the direction. I mean, it's just, it's a, a like, it's a film. Um, and I've seen that scene, like, dozens of times. And about 20 minutes after it, I can't remember what Kay's wearing. I certainly can't remember her hairstyle. I can't remember the lamp sh what the lampshade looks like. I can't remember what that he's wearing braces. I have instead this kind of emotional visualisation in my head. What I really remember is his thumping the 
at the desk. I remember the way she asks, did you do it in that sort of frightened way? I remember him pulling her close. And what I remember most is that look on her face as the door shuts, that look of horror and this realisation of what her life is. And that's what I think visual audio writing can do. It sort of goes underneath what everything looks like into an emotional space, into details which kind of drive an emotional connection to what's going on that gives me momentum through the story. And I wanted to demonstrate this with um, the work of a... with the work of a producer I deeply admire, Scott Carrier. It was noon and I was in the Green River Bar in Daniel, Wyoming. I was the only customer. I'd been floating down the Green River in a canoe, but the wind started blowing so hard, I was just getting pinned against the shore. I saw this town, Daniel, and figured I'd hole up until the wind died down. The bartender was an older woman. She was washing glasses left over from the night before. A German shepherd lay asleep on the concrete floor. On the mirror behind the bar were photos of the woman throwing a frisbee to the dog. To make conversation, I said, I see your dog likes to catch the frisbee. She said, he sure does, don't you, Fritz? You love playing catch. Fritz picked his head up off the floor and looked at her. I used to know a shepherd that was crazy about the frisbee, I said, but his hips went bad and he had to stop, broke his heart. Fritz has good hips, she said, but he had an eye disease called panis that attacks the corneas. It got worse and worse. Finally, we had to have his eyeballs removed. He's blind? He doesn't have any eyes, she said, so yes, he's blind. <laughs> I walked over to Fritz and he looked up at me and the skin on his forehead had been sewn shut over empty eye sockets. I rubbed his head and the skin slid over the holes. He must miss catching the frisbee, I said. No, she said, smiling. He still plays catch. Those photos were taken after his operation. I didn't believe it, so she offered to show me. Well, I'm Pat Walker, and we're in Daniel, Wyoming, which is, oh, 60-some miles south of Jackson, to locate it geographically. And her population sign says 110, but I believe the last time I counted right here in greater downtown Daniel, we have about 28. <laughs> we're in our front yard, but it doesn't matter where we might be, because this dog likes to play with his frisbee. <laughs> yes, you love showing off, don't you? Good dog. The way they did it was Fritz would run in a circle about 10 feet in diameter and Pat stood back about another 10 feet and when Fritz came around she'd throw it. Fritz would jump up and try to catch it. Good dog. Sometimes he'd catch it, sometimes he didn't. Oops, my fault. Even though it was choreographed, Pat didn't always throw it at the same time. She didn't always throw it in the same place. Okay. Good dog. It was amazing. This is the way he always played. See, this is how he played when he was sighted. And then I could look back, but it wasn't awfully long until he finally caught it once. He wanted us to do it. And we, of course, he'd miss and miss and miss. But he didn't get tired of it. And so we just kept going until he caught it. And like I say, if I've been good at it, why well, I've had him catch it up to 50 times without missing. His life is very full. He does everything he did before. A little slower, maybe. And he takes some bad knocks, but not too many anymore. So how do, you, how do you think he does it? How does he know? He hears, because see, like when that car came by, uh -huh. then he blows it. Right. Good job. Come to me. Yeah, can you calm down now? Why don't you lie down for a minute? No, lie down. Fritz, down. Lie down just for a minute. Here, lie down. Come on. What's it like living here? Wonderful. Here by choice. And besides this wonderfully beautiful country, why? I always said I didn't know whether I loved the people or the country most. Pretty special. While Pat was talking to me, she wasn't throwing the frisbee, and Fritz was getting impatient. He was standing there between us, and I was holding the microphone up to Pat, and suddenly he jumped up and bit down on the end of the microphone. He thought the microphone was the frisbee. I don't know how else to explain it, and even then I can't explain how he knew to bite that spot. Microphones don't make sound. 
they record sound, although it never worked very well after that. It did the metal screen. Now it sits on my bookshelf with a thousand-year-old arrowhead, a photo of an Eskimo in a kayak, and some rocks from Yellowstone Lake. Sometimes I show it to people. See this dent? It was made by the tooth of a blind German shepherd who thought it was a frisbee. This is Scott Carrier. Yeah, I just think it's a magnificent piece and I could hear it, you know, 15 times a day and still get goosebumps. And I think that is a heavily scripted piece, but there is such economy and precision in Scott Carrier's writing. He doesn't waste a word. There are very few adjectives. More than the lack of adjectives, there's very little description of physicality. There are just these, this sort of layering of information that's floating down a river, the canoe and the wind, the washing glasses. He describes the woman as an older woman. There's none of this bullshit about her, you know, her hair, which I think is a kind of polite way of describing a middle-aged woman without saying she's older. He just tells it like it is. Um, then the, the dog asleep on the concrete floor. And then he uses this really beautiful tape. And I want to say that I think when we write in audio, we write with tape. Our decisions about what tape to use where is a writing decision. So, and his use is just beautiful. The, the, the fact that she says, I'm here by choice, just tells me exactly what I need to know about this woman. She is dug into her community. And I sort of fill in all the physicality around that because I feel that I know this woman, that I'm connected to her. And this is just, in this piece, I think there's just this constant layering of visual information, but it's, it's kind of emotionally which visual information and I keep I keep going deeper and deeper and when that last scene when he talks about the microphone near the thousand head year old um, Indian arrowhead he never says to me I think this microphone is important and I think my experience with the dog was important but I actually know exactly how important. So it's, you know, again, this sort of layering of information. Um, I wanted to um, talk about that layering of visual information, which is, I think, an essential part of Jonathan Zenti's um, piece, Fat, from his Meat podcast, which everyone should listen to. It's, it's Beautiful. Um, so this piece is about fat. And fat is highly visual. And there's a lot of, there's a great deal of description available for talking about flesh and fat. You know, that rippled flesh that was like corpulent, double chins, bellies. But Jonathan doesn't do that. He doesn't waste my time trying to get me to see his body. Instead, he gives us a list of things that happen to him as someone who is fat. He gives me action. Yes, I'm fat. And I know that I'm fat. I know because every day something or someone reminds me I'm fat. Like when I walk around the subway in Rome, always so crowded, so full of people, and the squeezed man next to me looks at me and I know he's thinking, we are all gonna die now. Or when I get on the train and I sit down next to someone and the person snorts, stands up and goes looking for another seat. Or like that evening a date took me to her friend's place for dinner and I heard the host whisper in his wife's ear, oh my god, we are run out of food for the other guests now. And they laughed. Or that crazy time I booked a room on Airbnb and the host made me do a test to see if I could fit into her fancy shower because she was worried I might break the glass walls. Or that afternoon I was chilling out in a park, laying on a blanket with one of my friends, 
and she asked if she could record me talking about the first time I ate a lot. Blap, blap, blap. Okay, you start over. It was my first trip in Sicily. I've landed very late in the evening because the flight was in late. And I remember that I arrived at their home. There was a big bowl full of tomato sauce. And I was thinking, like, how am I supposed to eat it? There is any bread or nothing. And I put the fork inside. And inside that tomato sauce bowl, there was 10 meters sausages. Okay, that's the first time that I've ever eaten in my life. And I remember it like every taste in every angle of my tongue. Sausages in the sauce. Yeah. Or when my late grandmother introduced me to some relatives saying, this is my nephew, the fat one. Or when the tiny daughter of a friend shouted at me, Are you fatty because you eat too many biscuits? Want me to carry on? I can do this for hours. So in that list of incidences, um, we become aware of something much more important that, than what fat looks like. We become aware of how the world is continually seeing fat and then we see a man seeing how the world sees him and there's actions and little scenes and, you know, We all know that kid who says too much about the way someone looks and we know what it's like to be on a subway, on a crowded subway. So there's all these familiar coded images that we have and we, we sort of see behaviour around fat. We see that shaming behaviour and that really hits us at a much deeper place than we're hit when we, we talk about fat because... We all know what it's like to be shamed and we, we all know what it's like to shame others. And so there's that emotionality again of the writing within those images. And in the middle you get that glorious break from that, those images with the description of the, of the sausage and the sauce and Jonathan talks about his tongue darting Places. So you get that relief and then you go back into that um, kind of relentless, almost relentless list of things um, that he experiences. And, like, I happen to know what Jonathan Denty looks like, but most of his listeners won't. You all will when you see him collect his um, Third Coast trophy tonight, which is great. Um, but... Most people who listen to that won't know what Jonathan looks like and it, it doesn't matter. We don't need an accurate description of what he looks like. We'll sort of picture some, some guy who's overweight. We might know someone who's overweight so we'll transpose them or we'll, you know, just have a sort of kind of murky image. But we all feel what he's feeling in those very visual images he's setting up. So Jonathan, I think, is encouraging us to see something in that, in that way that we use the word see as in, oh, I see, I understand. Um, it's, it's more than visual. It's visual, but it's, it's actually more than just seeing the surface of things. And I think when you encourage listeners to see, rather than describing things or explaining things, there's a certain magic that happens. There's a, a real intimacy that you give your listeners and sort of opening up to really intimate moments that I think audio really does better than any other medium. Um, In a piece I made recently for the BBC's Shortcut series, um, produced with Eleanor McDowell from Falling Tree, I was trying to highlight my relationship with my mother. The piece isn't about my mother, it's about the death of a friend and um, the 
the grief I experienced after his death. And, but my mother figures in it um, quite heavily because I, the piece is about me going away on holidays with my family after his death. So I was grieving in a very particular way. And I wanted to explain just how important my mother was in that process. And in my first draft, I had a lot of detail about my mother and I, and there's a lot of detail. Um, you know, and I sort of thought I'd have to go into the history of our relationship and sort of, you know, she did that and then I did that and when I did this, she did that. And that, that's, you know, that'll give you some sort of uh, parameters and then you need to know this. And, and it was terribly long and terribly dull. And uh, Eleanor and I really cut back on most of that uh, description. And I just want to play you two pieces from, two little scenes from uh, the, the, this piece called The Ribbon Gums, which just, which shows you what I cut that relationship back to. My poor mother seems to be hoping against hope that her family might just get it together and get a move on because it's late morning now. We've eaten breakfast, but now her plan's gone all awry. Her youngest grandchildren, my nieces, are running around the house undressed, their hair around brushed, in no particular rush to get to either task. Uh, I'm not sure I really want sandwiches. Yes, you do. <laughs> My two daughters lays about checking their phones and trying to get out of the washing up. My father's reading the paper and my brothers and I aren't helping matters. We're being hopeless and we don't even have the grace to let her mother us. We roll our eyes when she asks about hats and sunscreen. There's more of an edge to my eye rolling. She and I fought last night when I arrived. I was tired after the drive and she'd organised the bedroom so that I was sharing a room with my nieces. And I know it wasn't her fault and there was nothing else to be done. We just don't have enough rooms and I know that, but I'd mumbled something about being the single widowed aunt saddled with two children who aren't even her own while the other adults got to sleep like, well, adults. And Mum didn't know what to do and the nieces cried because they loved their aunt and they thought it would be fun. I shared the room with the little ones and it was fine, but Mum and I remain wary of one another. So this is the second scene with my mother. At the lodge, Mum and I had tea together and I can see that she's trying to say something to me. We listen to the birds overhead. Then she touches my cheek, running her finger gently over the scar just below my left eye. It's tiny. You'd hardly notice it if you didn't know the story of my three-year-old self scared by a clown at the circus. When we were going past it, you were all excited about it. And even though we didn't Trying to run and falling into a sharp corner of the chair in front. You wailed and wailed, she says. I thought you'd never stop. In the, well, you're very interested in the wound and then it turned into a scar and it sort of was this little badge. And we sip our tea and she says that this is different, this loss that the death of my friend doesn't remake me a widow, doesn't make that pain worse. And I just have to say, well, it'll go, don't worry about it. We swim in the river again and my brothers and I climb the mountain and then we say goodbye. And that was really all I needed to tell you 
the power of my mother and my relationship, that sort of push me, pull you that mothers and daughters often have and that sort of exasperation and the, you know, you tired all the time and people, you know, she pisses me off and she's a bit frightened of me and I'm a bit aggressive. And then she is a person who can touch my face, which not many, I, I don't, I, you know, we don't allow that as adults to be touched like that. Um, and it's a big thing for someone to reach out and touch you and, and, and talk to you about your grief through that action. So that was, so all that stuff about, you know, the, the arguments my mother and I had had when my husband died and all, this, all the stuff that I thought you needed to get context in this story, I didn't need. I just needed the eye roll and her, you know, her trying to get things together, an eye roll and the touch of a cheek. And it's just that sort of... When we do that for our audiences, we're allowing them to make constant judgments and evaluations that they're not even really conscious they're making. They're just... They're getting together the information and, and making it make sense. And that, that comes together as a, as a visual in, the, in their head and a sort of understanding in their heart. And I actually started to think more about that sort of layering of information after an uh, afternoon I spent with my dog, Charlie, who does not work in podcasting. <laughs> um, that's him. <laughs> He's cute. He's not very smart, but he's cute. Um, so Charlie was lying on my bed, which he's been forbidden to do, but um, often does anyway. And I was lying. I was lying down reading a book. And we live in quite a big um, two-story terrace house. And uh, my it was time for my daughter Anna to come home, and Charlie heard a key in the lock, and I could tell this by the way he sort of, you know when dogs sit up and they do that really fantastic, they cock their, their ear to get a better, better listen. And so he had that information, so it was sort of, well, what do I do with this? Because I can hear the, and then he can obviously hear her, um, and so he sort of calmed down a bit because he's made that evaluation. And then, but she's brought a friend, so he hears that voice. And he's also got smelling going on, which I can't do in the podcasting world yet, but we'll get to it. Um, so he's just doing that sort of, like, moving forward, moving back, cocking his head this way, cocking it that way. He's really not... He really doesn't want to run downstairs and investigate if he doesn't have to because he's quite lazy. But he kind of, you know, it's like, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And then Anna walks in the door and it's like, ah, oh, right, it's you. Hi, bit of a wag of the tail and he just, he relaxes. That's his moment to pause. Which, and, and looking, at, looking at him doing that, I just thought that is... That is why we shouldn't introduce people as having a blonde bob. You know, we should, we should actually be encouraging some sort of, what's going on? What's, you know, because that's what gets that deep listening and that deep visualisation that you get with that listening. Um, so, and even if I'm not right, that's a way of making podcasts for spoodles. Like, at the very least. Um, so I think, I think a, a, another illustration of this is in Caitlin Prest's No. Um, and in the first episode of No, she uh, takes us into the North Dundas schoolyard and she never gives us a detailed description of the physicality or the size or the sort of physical characteristics, but you'll see how she kind of leads us in. North Dundas District High School is in the middle of two cemeteries and two fields of grazing cattle. In the front yard beside the teacher's parking lot, there's a sad little tree. 
Underneath the sad little tree is where the smokers smoke. It was there that I founded the No Getting Ass Club. Getting ass was defined as anything from a handjob to a dick in your cunt. The point of the club was to get kicked out. So, I mean, that shot, that piece of audio to me feels like a, a wide shot panning down to the tree and panning down to the, the kids under the tree and, you know, the smokers smoke. So I've got that sort of going on. It's highly visual, yet not detailed. Then she goes on and goes into the lives of the teenagers themselves. I wanted to get asked from Tyler Thomas. Tyler looked just like a European B-movie actor I'd fallen in love with in the non-musical version of Les Miserables. I was so obsessed with him that I made best friends with a girl who lived down the street from where he lived, Sandra. Sandra's house was the kind where parents bought cigarettes for teenagers, where you could accidentally get drunk off a king can and puke on your feet in a cold shower, where you could sit on the big L-shaped couch and watch Jerry Springer in peace. One such afternoon, I was sitting on the wrong side of the L. So taking that scene in its entirety, you start with, you know, a schoolyard being um, bounded by two cemeteries, which is a great image. And then you, you know, get further and further in, and then she's sitting on the wrong side of the L-shaped couch, which we, we all know what that means. We all have felt that. And, but she's, she's brought us to that moment through all those small images of the smoking and the puking on the feet and Jerry Springer, and so it's sort of led us to that moment. So I've talked a lot about that layering, but I don't... I don't want to leave you with the impression that right, the audio writing needs to be frenetic and we don't need to keep um, layering every 20 seconds. <laughs> and I think there's, there's room for a lot of gaps because in those gaps we, we are also receiving information. So um, I just want to demonstrate this with... Um, a clip from This Is Love, which is a new podcast this year created by the criminal team. And this is the first episode called The Run. And um, the gap in this is extraordinary. One day in the early 70s, David Alexander decided to go for a run in Central Park. And so I drove up there and... uh parked the car, and walked out in the meadow, still holding my key ring, my big key ring. <laughs> and um, I, I wanted to put, the, put it down. And there I saw uh, Jesse sitting on a blanket a Wednesday afternoon in the spring. And she had the Times Sunday to Arts and Leisure section, a bottle of water, a sketch pad, and she had a men's hat with a ribbon tipped to one side. And I said, ah, perfect. May I leave my keys here while I go for run? Sure, she said. And so I was gone for 15 minutes and uh, came back. And um, we had a natural conversation. And uh, I sat down, and uh, then uh, some time went by, and I offered her a ride home, which she accepted. It was a different time <laughs> in New York <laughs> then. <laughs> Will you describe what she looked like? Uh, of 
five foot eight, straight posture. At the time, I had long hair and green eyes. Uh, athletic and uh, slender, not really slender, muscular slender. So what you've got in that little clip is um, like first this sort of, this kind of slow layering of images, the Sunday arts and leisure section, the blanket, the fact that it's spring, the meadow, the man's hat tipped to the side with a ribbon. It's, it's this beautiful, romantic... Like, I, I see that with a soft, focused lens in my head. And then you've got that excruciating pause where Phoebe Judge asks him to describe what she looks like. And then you've got... He goes into a list of physical characteristics, five foot eight slender, not, not slender slender, but muscular slender, which for me, like that description of her never makes it into my mind because everything I need to know has been in that moment of silence. Because it's not quite silence, he sort of coughs and tries to speak and, and it's just, that is where my visual information comes from. And you needed the, um, the scene setting beforehand and that sort of visual stuff beforehand because you needed something to cling on to. And I think that list of attributes, physical attributes, is interesting at the end of that pause because it actually gives you space to pause after the pause, like your brain reconfigures back after that really emotional pause. But it's, um, it's not that piece of description that stays with you. It's this very sort of romantic vision and then the sort of feeling of something is not okay here, something is not right. Um, and that hits you right there, that sort of sadness um, and fear. Um, and I think what's really, what really kind of devastates me about this piece is when I listened to it, I, I did think that in some moods and on some days, like if I'd been cutting that tape, I would have removed the pause because, you know, you're looking for places to squeeze into time, you're looking, you know, you want your, your interviewees to sound their best and you don't want them to, you know, stumble. And, I mean, I hope I wouldn't have. I hope I, I'm a better producer than that. But I think, you know, it's, that, it's those moments in tape where we're making those choices um, and sometimes we get it wrong and we miss that magic because you can never, no matter how performative your narration might be, you can, I really don't know if you can get that moment in narration. We can't pause like that. We can't um, give our listeners that moment. So um, again, I think, you know, they're writing with tape, and that's a really important scripting decision. Um, so my, the last piece I want to play is from an Australian podcast called How Do You Sleep at Night, um, which was developed, produced and hosted by Sarah McVie, who now works at Gimlet. It's, um, it's a six-part uh, series about people who live in the face of judgment. So whether they've, you know, done something wrong or whether they just lead lives that we consider sort of difficult, you know, ethically challenging. Um, I'm going to play you two short grabs from the episode called The Killer, 
which is about a guy, um, an Australian guy in um, Queensland, um, who stabbed two completely innocent and unknown men um, to death one night in Brisbane in the 90s. Um, and first I'm going to play you a bit that just sets up him as a character and then I'm going to play you a piece, um, the description his mother uses of him. It's a bit confusing because his mother calls him Robert because that's actually his name. He calls himself Charlie because he, he changed his name to Charlie after Charles Manson. Longish grey hair jammed under a Liverpool cap, which he wears backwards. He looks like if Santa joined a neo-Nazi gang. I've got fucking shit tattooed all over me. Fucking some of it's even got my own urine mixed in with it, fucking so the, the ink would take. What does it say on your fingers? Oh, still the remaining part of a gang tat, sick boy. And then underneath it, there'd be a smart ass of what unit, sick unit. And then on the other hand, it's SNFU. And that's either society's no fucking use, solicitors are no fucking use, systems no fucking use, screws are no fucking use. <laughs> Very versatile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a sweet pass. Don't you take it down to all this, the way our house is? Oh, yeah, they're too much. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you what Robert was yeah. like as a little boy? Nice little boy. He's eight pound born. Tell her what you did to me, Dad said, for a baby contest. Oh, yes, you won first prize in the baby contest. Yeah, no, what did you do? <laughs> dress me up as a fucking girl? Yeah, hang on. They didn't take any notice of the dress. He won the day with his skin, his eyes, his, uh, he was breastfed. That gave me more points. Um, How old was he? About five months old. And he was beautiful, was he? Well, they're all, all nice. What was he like as a school-age boy? Well, in what way? His personality. How would you describe him? Just an ordinary child. Because the school's only up in the next street. But, um, was he naughty? Oh, no more than anybody else, yeah. Who's this one? That's Robbie. He's wearing a little pale blue romper and he's got little pale blue socks and dark brown Ooh. leather shoes. Ooh. You. There's a newspaper clipping. It's all yellow and it's from, there's some handwriting on it that says it's from 1991. Gang hits three men. A savage attack by a gang of armed men on three people in Woodridge home. Left police baffled for a motive yesterday. So... I think that description that his that Charles, Charlie Roberts' mother uses for him as a baby is incredibly interesting. I mean, the the baby contest where she dresses him up as a girl is weird. Um, you know, there's a sort of strange ambiguity about that. They're um, really a very working class family, so that the money from the baby competition was important, that it's sort of a lie. She's also so deeply involved with him as a baby and so able to talk about his physicality as a baby. And then as he gets older into boyhood, she sort of, the mother sort of loses the trail. She can't quite get him in that um, very specific way. So it's, um, you sort of get that idea that she's losing him um, and then, you know, he, he goes to prison for the murder of two men. And in that scene, Sarah described the photo with the romper suit and you know, she and I had some discussions about that because it was like, well, you know, they all wear romper suits and they all, like, the, you know, what, what is the point of this description? But in actual fact, 
we, we felt that that's actually the way we describe criminals on the run. You know, we try to get a very specific um, description of what they're wearing and what they look like. So we wanted that to sort of echo back to his criminality and we butted that up against the newspaper article, which is a very, you know, that non-emotional description of crime. Um, so I guess with that... And the romper suit, we we did use that, but we really thought about using that. And I think that's the main thing that I want to um, talk about in in terms of description. That there's a, there's no hard and fast rules about what you describe and how you describe it. But I think you've you've really got to know what you're doing. Like, why are you telling me this person? lives in a cosy house. What does that mean? What does cosy mean? What does it mean that she has long flowing hair? What does it mean that he has a quiff? And I'm not saying never use description, but actually if you are able to think about what you mean when you're describing something and what those codes that you're tapping into mean, um, it will be story rather than exposition. Because, you know, a blue dress, a blue gingham dress is different from a red silk dress. A misty morning is different from a foggy one. A bunch of daisies is different from a single red rose. So you can use all those descriptive tropes or you can up in them, but you need to know what you're using them for. Be purposeful with them, be, you know, use them as momentum. You know, think of a camera panning and think of your audience landing on one moment and moving to the next, which is not about not being slow and meditative if that's the pace that you want to set, but use, use, go through that pace with your audience. Don't get stuck on either a beautiful poetic description or just description for the hell of it. Really think through that description because otherwise your writing is really just a haircut and a whole lot of yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Thanks. Hi. The uh, very long pause before the man describes the woman he met in Central Park. Was that the uh, edited longer than it was on tape? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. No. I, I, don't, I don't think so. It sounds like a real pause. And uh, hearing that episode, he does talk quite slowly and, um, like, he's got that sort of natural rhythm. So I, don't, I don't think it was edited. I was curious when you were talking about your mom and you had all that extra tape you mentioned and then you figured out that one piece was what you needed when she touched your eye. What, what light bulb went off in your brain and went, oh, that's it, if you could describe it? I, so I always had that scene in there because it had happened and it was um, important. I think it may have been in discussions with Eleanor, who edited edited my script, and it was sort of, yeah, it was probably not a light bulb, more of a slow turning on of a of a lamp, um, but just that sort of. I think I always overwrite in my first draft, and it's that the light bulb is probably in the stripping away and thinking that do I need that? Do I need that? And then. I'm left with, you know, the actual essence of it. Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, uh, a, lot of, a few of my pieces have characters that talk about things related to the past. Yeah. And um, you know, places that I have not seen, or places that you know, have changed a lot. So do you have any thoughts on how to use the layering images of things happening so far in the past that you weren't part of? Uh, I think it's really hard and I haven't cracked it. 
Um, but I still think it's finding those small moments, like not trying to capture a whole, the whole of the Roman Empire, maybe, or, you know, capturing the putting on of a toga. I, I, you know, that, that sort of, I still think keep it small and keep it layered rather than, uh, yeah, trying to take me, it, like keeping your lens small. But I think it is really complicated and a lot of the writing I've done about the past hasn't, you know, I still don't, I'm, I'm not there yet. Um, I'm curious to know, how do you sort of figure the balance um, between the emotional layering and trying to sort of not just give you like the blonde, blonde bob and the scary smile and sort of also to sort of maybe be more direct and actually describing a person or a place. So how do you sort of either train your brain or, or start to think about ways to find that balance where like you have enough of this so that you really don't need this side or that you can sort of maybe do both? Um, I like to describe, I'll always describe action rather than physical stuff. I think that's really important because I think you often get both. Um, I think there are times when you need to be very direct. I, I mean, I think there's, you know, in... Um, much more journalistic um, work, you actually, you don't want to get sort of into the emotion. I mean, I think you want to hit emotional buttons, but you actually have to, these are the facts as they are. Um, but I think there's, uh, I still think, yeah, it's mainly, it's stripping away that first and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth draft um, and getting, you know, there's an essence, I think. So instead of, yeah, I mean, I, I talk about it as layering, but it's also a sort of, um, it's a taking off of layers as well. I'm just curious if you have a rule of thumb for when to include race or ethnicity in the description or in, um, in this layering. You know, do you feel like it's, Sometimes relevant, never relevant, can be just misleading. Um, or if you ever have, if you grapple with that at all. Yeah, I grapple with that a lot. I think when it matters, when it actually does this story change, talking about race or ethnicity, you know, does that, and how is that going to change in my audience's head? And, and I, am I going to? Um, perpetrate a stereotype, what am I doing? I still think it's that question, why, why would I do this? And sometimes it's absolutely valid and sometimes it's not. But I think always being prepared to question, like really think, what am I doing this for? Um, if it's a woman walking down the street, do I need to know that she's Chinese? I don't know. I might, you know, there might be times I do and probably oftentimes that I don't. I also think as a, a white middle-class person, I need to um, often take advice on that and I need to know that I am in a very privileged position where it seems like my race is the norm um, and the dominant, um, you know, and I am incredibly privileged and I see, the, I see life through that lens and I have to be um, given guidance in that. So, I, yeah, I think it's a case-by-case -case thing. And I think it's something we should struggle with and think about all the time. Hi, Sophie, thanks so much for your talk. I'm a really big fan. Um, and I just wondered if there are any um, like uh, works of art or like literature or writers that you feel like have really deeply influenced your writing sensibilities. 
I'm going to sound really uncool, but Jane Austen is big because she writes about what she knows and she writes on a very small, I mean, it's very small canvas. So for me, she's really important. I think Edith Wharton is really important. I just spent two weeks in New York and thought about Edith Wharton and Lily Bart and the House of Mirth the whole time I was there. Um, Virginia Woolf is really important at times, and at times she sort of gives them the shits. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, look, it's probably Jane Austen is, is my go-to, um, just for the economy and the turns of phrases. And I know she's not cool, but, you know, she can write. She can totally write. Um, Joan Didion has really influenced me in her the way she talks about grief, um, and I think she's 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 got such a spareness in her writing, like it never gets melodramatic, or when there when she talks about her own melodramatic tendency, she knows. She knows what she's doing and she, you know, she can actually, you know, she can look at herself and I think that's been really uh, influential for me. Hi, thanks. I wanted to ask about sound design because uh, you said that uh, there was this creative sound designer who was very influential to you and you talked about the experience of your dog being puzzled by sound and describing people in a way that is kind of, you know, raises questions. And I, uh, run into situations with creative sound designers where I feel like I kind of have to sometimes rein in the weirdness, like it gets too weird. Yeah. Uh, where, what, what's your view on, on the questions with, with sound and how weird should it get? And what's the discomfort level that you think yeah. your audience should did you Did you go to I Love Language? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think his, uh, I think John's um, phrase that he used was, um, you know, try all the weird shit that's in your head and then when people tell you that it's not working, listen to them. Yeah, I mean, I just went, yes. <laughs> um, I always feel like a sound designer will bring something I'm not expecting and that I really love and then they'll bring something that I don't love so much. I, I really do think my work suits a sort of spareness of sound design but I think there are other um, things that I work on that um, other projects that don't, I think it's just when that sort of, you know, there's often one too many effects or one, you know, like just one bit of scoring that doesn't make sense. And I think, you know, just listening to tracks individually often helps me and then together so you can identify what's not working. I also think sound, you know, like signposting through sound can like really be you know, like she walked up the stairs and you hear the, you know, I like say it or show me or, but I don't need both. 